Welcome back to another edition of Say Who Say Pod. He is Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel. This is kind of weird, Danny, because it's 9.16 a.m. on Wednesday as we're recording this. And this is technically signing day, national signing day, the the regular national signing day. Um, but it's not really a thing anymore. Washington, like most schools, signed pretty much its whole class back during the early period in December. They did add Tayshawn Lyons, the, the one committed guy who hadn't signed yet uh, this morning. They announced him. That's kind of the one guy people were waiting for. So, so he's in the boat. Um, and I know you're very excited about that. You were you 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 set your alarm this morning and wore your special pajamas and and there you go. No, I'm happy to hear that he signed. Like I am. I I do I do sort of feel. And honestly, it's because I feel like once the kid's signed, then I can get fully excited about it. Like before that, it's just like, oh, that's good news. Like where I'm like, okay, yes, he's he's in the boat. We're ready to go. Why has it changed? Because and and I guess like I'll my background in '99, 1990. I remember the world before the internet. Like I feel that's what Gen X's sort of position in the world is now. Is that like I actually like I didn't have email until I went to college. I didn't have a cell phone probably till I was 20, oh, I was like 25. Um, and that Gen X, that we're now the coots that actually remember what the world is like before the internet. And in, in 99, I came to work at the Seattle Times and covering high school sports. So I did that for four years and football recruiting was a big deal. Like we would have what was called a chip list each year and it was the top 100 college football recruits, high school football players with an eye toward recruiting guys that would play in college in the state. And it's pretty ambitious. It was hard. Like we put a lot of work into it and you talk to college recruiters and you talk to, there were some recruiting analysts now, but you fast forward 22 years and coverage looks entirely different. And I just, the first thing I would say, like this would be the day we would have stories from a couple different signing like places where kids signed why isn't this the landmark date on the recruiting calendar anymore? Well, because I think coaches clamored for so long for an early period um, because, you know, it's it's more work to babysit all your committed guys till February, till, you know, till the first Wednesday in February uh, when you get guys committed so early. I think, it, I think the rule changed because you look around and it's like, well, most of these classes are set, but... Now you've just got coaching staffs babysitting guys, trying to make sure they don't flip, you know, stressing out for another whatever it is, six weeks or so, I want to say. So, hey, why not just let these guys, you know, get in the boat in December and and, and turn over the new calendar? And, you know, the, now the time before the regular signing period in February is just finishing off your class. Super-duper high-profile prospects can wait as long as they want. I mean, they didn't, you know, JT Tui Maloa waited until – june or or july or whatever to pick ohio state like if you're at that level you you can do that so there's always going to be some guys still whose uh whose decision is still outstanding but now though you're seeing people criticize the early period because it's like well now you're you're trying to sew up your class while programs are competing for conference championships Mm -hmm. and you got bowl game prep and you got final exams and like so there's a thought now that it's December is just too much. So either do away with the early period or maybe just allow players to sign their letters on a rolling basis. You know, the, the big headline is that the national letter of intent, like what does it even mean to sign an NLI anymore? Any kid who signs an NLI and wants out of it gets out of it. Right. As they probably should. So they, they have to ask though. Right. Once you've signed, the school does have to formally release you from it, but no, nobody, nobody says no anymore. You know, like, yeah. I think it's just not, it's not worth the headache and, and the, the bad optics. I'm trying to think of the most, because the coverage of, of college sports has probably changed more than the coverage of any other sport since like now that I'm an old man. Like if I look back to what college sports coverage was like in the eighties and nineties, because all of the scandals, hell, it might even go to like 2010. All of the college scandals were pretty much players, like were rules violations. They weren't legal cases. I mean, there were some like the Oklahoma quarterback getting busted for selling crack. 
Like that, that was one. But most of them were like, oh, man, there's been cheating here. I can't believe it. Like the USC investigation and those sort of things. And, and I, I feel like now, like the nature of it has changed. The biggest, the biggest national letter of intent scandal that I can remember, were, I think, was a guy named Sean Higgins. And he was from Southern California, and he signed a letter of intent to go to UCLA. And then I think he claimed he was threatened by his stepfather into signing it. And like UCLA didn't want to let him out of it. So he was like, look, I had to, otherwise I was going to get beaten. And, 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 and then they invalidated it. And I, he ended up going to Michigan and was actually, I think he, in 89, he was on the team that won the final four in 89 at the, at the kingdom. Like when Ramil Robinson hit the free throws, it's I can't remember one quite like that. Like it pretty what you said is pretty much anybody who asks gets out of it. I assume that's because all the schools know that if someone one of these kids took it to court, they'd get their ass beat in court. Yeah, well, and it's you know player uh, freedom of movement for players is I mean that's just the thing now. And, and if you if you cut against that, you're you know you're cutting against progress basically. And also, you know who wants to who wants to get wrapped up in in a, a battle with a kid who doesn't want to be at your program anymore you just let him go you know i had a coach tell me once you know i was talking i was talking to this coach about let you know granting a player their release and and he kind of said look uh every coach every school who gets in a battle over this and tries to stand their ground and says it, it this wasn't even a, a letter of intent it was a transfer and the idea mm-hmm. of limiting where that transfer could could go school wise because coaches used to be able to do that, and they, and this coach just said, "Look, I, every time the, a battle like this plays out, the player always ends up getting to go where they want anyway, and the school just looks bad. So why bother if they don't want to be here? Just let them go. It's way less of a headache." Should we make it like like it was? I I don't know if it's still this way for college baseball players, but with a when you drafted a player out of high school, like the, the, the MLB team that drafted him could try to sign him up until the moment he attended his first class. So you would get some crazy stories. You got his about... ex positioned outside Kane Hall. <laughs> exactly. Like where you literally went. I think the story that I heard legitimately like was it detailed a Stanford player. And there was somebody that they were like that, like the guy was on the campus trying to convince him don't go to this class because we really want to sign <laughs> that could be kind of fun for for a college football recruiting that like the finish line is actually when he steps foot into his first official class <laughs> it's when he starts taking notes <laughs> washington would have a huge advantage no no it would be a huge disadvantage because their classes don't start till late, so being on the quarter system might actually be a real impediment if the if the barrier was was your first class. Well, the the freshmen all come in in the summer for leap. summer. So they yeah they do get they take a, classes when they do that? They do. I don't I don't know that they're the same. That's a good question. I don't know if they're the same as the classes you'd take. Like yeah, when everybody's on campus when when the quarter starts in September, but um, they do. There's at least some sort of like acclimation instruction i want to that's probably some there's probably some actual class like you know the the type of classes any student could sign up for i don't i'm not i'm not positive on that though when you went to uw did they have figs yeah i uh i was in one really what was your freshman interest group uh i remember the number it was 131 i don't remember the uh it was around communications of of some kind i still i'm I'm still like good friends with a couple people i met i met in that fig I felt so left out because I didn't get to do a fig. My favorite. I felt so left out. <laughs> my favorite part of it was that they made you feel like you had to take all the classes in the fig. And I, the one I signed up for was, it was 17 credits, 15 credits plus the little two credit fig meeting class that you, you know, it's just a free two credits. And yeah. my buddy who I'm, I'm, you know, I'm still in touch with to this day, he dropped the psych 101 class from it. And I was like, "You can do that." He's like, "Yeah, they try to they try to make it seem like you can't." But he's like, "I only wanted to take twelve credits, so I just dropped that class." So I did that too, <laughs> and only took twelve credits my first quarter. And I was like, "Oh, this is way better." I took Psych One Hundred One like the next <laughs> quarter with all my friends with a different instructor, and it was way better. <laughs> so funny! I remember showing up and like I felt like I was the uncool kid because all these people were like, "I'm in a fig." I'm like, "I I don't have a fig." 
Like, why, why am I not in a fig? How did I not know about these figs? Because I was moving up there from California. It was very, very funny where I was like, oh, I Poor feel like Danny. I'm on the outside here. Uh, I did a story on Danny Shelton being one of the, the fig instructors his senior year. That's awesome. Went and sat That'd in be pretty on his, fun to have. sat in on his class. How was he as a teacher? His presence? He was yeah, he was good. The kids listened to him. Um, you know, you're not you're not actually teaching anything in the fig the fig classes. It's kind of more it's it's the cool thing was that, you know, you're a freshman, you're there for the first time. You don't really you don't really get what the campus like community and culture is like yet. So those those little classes sort of function as kind of your introduction to hey, what's going on around campus and different events that are happening and sort of learning like what the community is. So he was he was good at laying all that out. He had a couple he had some guest speakers. He brought DeAndre Campbell in that day, former receiver. Um just talking about the importance of like networking once you get deeper into your major and you're doing internships and stuff and it was interesting. It's it's all you know, obviously it's all it's always it's always interesting and and uh kind of fun to see, you know, players in in their element off the field because they, you know, spend a heck of a lot more time uh, off the field not wearing pads than they do uh playing football, so yeah. How interesting was my Sean Higgins story? Are you interested enough to hear the full details of it or no? Yes, I am. Because I'm not familiar with this. 1986. I'm reading from Sports Illustrated right now. Signed, sealed, and starry. Prep star Sean Higgins chose UCLA, but only, he says, because he was coerced. Armin Katayan is the byline. And Armin Katayan, for people that don't know, like at that That's point, a name. Was, yeah, he was, he, he was a pretty big deal, like investigative reporter. And I guess to some extent still is. Most of his work is now on TV. He lives a couple blocks from me here, or or did a couple years ago. He did video for um, The Athletic for a time. Oh, did he? Armin's awesome. Uh, the, the What I described, so he, Sean Higgins, is living in, in Los Angeles and re- really kind of was torn about, he was a big-time recruit, torn about where he was going to go. And ended up saying, like, they'd set his press conference for when he was going to announce that he doesn't show up. His mom calls and says, it's been a hard night. Oh, we're, we're, in, we're tired. We're not coming. So they didn't do it. And then it's announced, okay, he signed with UCLA. Then Higgins comes out and, basic, and says, look, I was coerced into signing and also offered um, improper inducements. I really want to go to Michigan. And I believe Michigan is where his father lived. And then the, the issue became that his stepfather had been part of a plot to pressure him to go to UCLA. So it starts. this starts with he, and it's Higgins. Higgins paints a sordid picture of how he came to sign the letter of intent. This is with UCLA. Although the NCAA and Pac-10 refused to comment on their investigation, Higgins has told SI that a wealthy UCLA alumnus offered him a car and other enticements if he became a Bruin. He also gives his version of why he and his family were no-shows at the November 18th press conference. Higgins, who now lives with a cousin, says his 6'9", 250-pound stepfather struck him during a quarrel early that morning after he made clear his desire to attend Michigan. Higgins contends that he signed the letter of intent against his will only after after he was menaced with a baseball bat. Oh, my. Um, Yeah, so, like, legitimately scary. Like, awful, I think we all can agree that the threat of abuse and the idea of being struck by a stepfather that's horrible like yeah, that's, that's off bad. the table tactically i want to shout out sean higgins is understanding like if you want to get out of that letter of intent one of the best things that you can do is say hey these bastards tried to recruit me illegally <laughs> like you want to talk about poisoning the well <laughs> like, you just go back like not not only did that happen, but UCLA, this dude was going to give me a car. Like, what's UCLA supposed to do? No, no, you have to come here now. It's like, oh, so I can take the car that your wealthy alumnus donor promised me? So I just, I appreciate the it's tactical It's parked savvy. outside. <laughs> what are we supposed to do with this now? Yeah. Do you want me to come to your school and put you on probation? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. How, how, is this the hill you want to die on? <laughs> The parental aspect of the NLI process is is also an can throw a wrench in things because if if you're under eighteen, you have to have a guardian sign it. Yes, um, I remember Byron Murphy's mom telling me. Maybe I've I've mentioned this before. I've written it before that on signing day, uh, the year that he signed with Washington, she signed two NLIs, one with Washington and one with Arizona State, because he was like he he had committed. 
but he was that like on the fence and I think that was one where I mean it sounds like he was really sick over you know what do I do what's the because the hometown poll was really strong and ASU just did not back off and um, I think that was one that was Jimmy Lake was breathing a, a pretty huge sigh of relief when the letter actually came through for Washington because that and I don't think it was like super on the radar just how how torn he was that day. I don't remember it being like a a huge thing because I like it didn't it didn't drag out or anything. But um, in retrospect, like talking to his mom, it did, it did sound like that was a really like really kind of close call for for UW. When I hear stories like that. There, there is a part of me that will feel that like, oh, like, is this the best system for having a kid decide where he's going to go to college? Because I hope for every kid that signs, it's a moment of intense excitement. Like to, to be, be, yeah, right. Like it should, like nobody should feel like, oh my God, I can't, I, I can't really decide. And I, I don't want to pretend like, oh, that's this huge burden because it's a tremendous opportunity to play college football in the Pac-12 at any school. It's a tremendous opportunity to play college football, period. And to have people want you to do that is really cool. And that should be a really fulfilling moment for every kid um, that that signs it. But it does, man. It gets so weird. And I all these things we're talking about are all related to reasons why it's hard for me to get into recruiting too far and why I generally set the line of demarcation at the letter that came in today for one of Washington's players where like once that happens, then I feel better about sort of feeling like thinking of that as a Husky or as a player that I'm going to cheer for because there's something more tangible and more real. And it's not like I'll be part of the sort of the, the competing pressures that are being applied to try and get these guys to come and play for your program that you want to win. Yeah, and it is such a, a bummer because you still see guys like announce their decision on signing day and there are still some kids who you can just tell like are not excited about it. Or, you know, it's not because they picked the wrong school necessarily. Some In some cases, maybe they did. And you've seen guys like change. You know, there was a kid who committed to Oregon very surprisingly on the first signing day when everyone thought that he was bound for Notre Dame and then a couple of days later, or maybe even the next day, said, "You know, I made a mistake. I'm going to Oklahoma actually instead." Did when um, that when that happened? Did the cigar fall out of Dan Lanning's mouth? <laughs> like I'm just wondering. Like did it? Did, did we then get cartoon surprise eyes where he's like, "Oh, oh, oh!" It's unclear. It's unclear because that, um, that that's the kid that he lit the cigar over, right? Well, it, that was kind of that was like the big surprise. There mm-hmm. were a couple others that day that they landed that were that were pretty big time, pretty big time guys. But um, they had a quarterback they flipped from Baylor, I want to say. Um, but yeah, it's the, you, such a funny verb. We flipped him. Flipped. <laughs> Flip it the up, flippening. smack it, rub it down. Oh no! <laughs> I did a story on Hugh McElhaney's recruitment a couple years ago. <laughs> I got to go so, look that up. It's so funny because, like, I literally just thought to myself one day, I'm like, did, this dude was, like, really super big time, and, like, everyone knows by now that Washington totally just paid him yes. and, and broke every rule to get him. Like, was this covered? Like, what was the coverage of his recruitment? Because there wasn't recruiting coverage back then. And I'm telling you, it was covered like he was a five-star guy by, like, 24-7 and rivals in the year 2017. Like, no kidding. all this, where's he going to go? He's visiting here. He was some there was there was all this even after he got to Washington there was turbulence with the California players they weren't being treated properly by the the hometown like local guys and there was talk that the California guys were all going to defect and someone thought that they saw Hugh McElhaney on San Jose State's campus but it turns out it wasn't actually him it was just some other guy who looks like him and all he was supposed to go to USC and I think there were some payments promised there and the the checks didn't cash or the, the promises fell through or he was enrolled in their extension program at one point and all this back and forth. And uh was very interesting to read about in 19, you know, 1948, 1949. No, no NLI program back then, though. What was was the main coverage in the newspapers? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the L.A. Times. There, I mean, it's kind of amazing. Like back then, there were so many different daily papers. Yeah. 
that like you haven't even heard of, you know, that haven't printed in forever, but that, you know, covered stuff extensively. Um, the times and the PI wrote about it and all, all sorts of people chiming in and his dad talked to the media at one point and, um, he went on, the, the thing was he got married right out of, well, right, right after he was done at Compton junior college, mm-hmm. he got married to his high school sweetheart and they supposedly got in the car and drove up to Seattle. Although I think we know now he, they flew and he was greeted at the airport by like coaches, which you weren't supposed to do back then. And, um, yeah, that he, he, the, the thing was Washington basically put a package together for him where they're like, look, if you come here, we'll get you a job mm-hmm. that you'll be paid for and we'll get your wife a job. And, you know, maybe she actually worked the job. I don't know. But, uh, there were, there were financial arrangements that made it uh, feasible for him to live comfortably there with his, with his new wife and play football. And the whole thing was, it was just, it was just kind of funny how it was written about at the time. So a couple of things that are really interesting about like that. And I, I, I need to go read this story because McElhaney has always fascinated me. Um, he's, and he's incredibly successful college football player. And then when he went to the NFL, he was, he was a top 10 pick like in the early fifties, but in the million dollar backfield. Right. But everybody said, and like not joking that he took a pay cut when he went to the NFL, like that he was making such good money. And that's a point where like college football is still a bigger deal than professional football in, in, in the country. It's starting to change, but it hasn't completely flipped yet. And the other thing is, though, that the media sort of environment, we currently talk about sort of the fractured media environment that exists and there's no single sort of publication of record and and like the decline of the authority of news. But this really isn't new. Like there have been different periods like this. It's just never been with the immediacy of the Internet. But like there have been points where there are all of these different competing papers in which those papers have drastically varying uh, levels of reliability as to whether they printed things that were true or like flat out hoaxes or played a little more fast and loose or put pictures of dead bodies on the front of the like there's all these. So that idea of this being sort of a, a recruiting scandal, if you will, or like it's not scandal, but but like there being this heaping mounts of attention, but it also kind of happening at a time when we there the the Puritan element of amateurism hadn't fully crystallized, in which college college athletes had to deny the money that their services kind of could command on an open market to be able to play college football. Like there had to be a purity of that. That's fascinating to me. Do you know who Torchy Torrance is? No, uh uh-uh. uh. He was like a he, he was he was like the original UW Athletics mega booster. Uh-huh. He's the one who oversaw the slush fund that Sports Illustrated wrote about in nineteen fifty six that kind of led to the dissolution of the uh the conference. He so he wrote he wrote a biography um and and has a, a lot in there about the recruitment of Hugh McElhaney. And he was just straight up like yeah, I I don't think there's any problem with paying these guys. You know, they could, if if they're just dependent on their scholarship money, that's not enough. And you know, if if uh, a little extra in their pocket is what they need to get by, like he thought it was it was virtuous to to pay college players. And so you know, with with today's uh, NIL rules and everything, maybe he was uh, maybe he was a little bit ahead of his time. But I remember there there was a section in his book about how they they had Hugh and his wife maybe out to out to uh, like a booster's house in Palm Springs and we're trying to keep him away from other coaches and it's just is it's uh it's good times and it's funny because like the more things change the more they stay the same right yeah but that's also like when you're saying that what I think is there was a moment back then where things could have gone a different path and you could have seen a professionalization of college sports earlier than we have and instead we saw it like it went the other way. It went to a mandated amateurism. Um, those those sort of things are fascinating to me of how did we get the system that that we've got? Because essentially, like college bas- or college football and to a lesser extent college basketball morphed into 
feeder programs, minor leagues, substitute minor leagues for the NBA and the NFL. And I don't think it happened by anybody's overt decision-making. I think it was just a series of incremental steps that got it there and then created this insane disconnect where you went from being a high school senior where everybody knew how good you were going to be at these two incredibly valuable sports. And they're like, yeah, but for a little while, you're going to go to college and be a student and you can't get paid for it because you're going to be an amateur. And all these other people are going to, like, it's going to generate a ton of money, but you're going to get your education because that's what it's for. Like, it really... It wasn't inevitable that things developed this way, and it hasn't developed this way in other countries, but it did here, and that's fascinating to me. It should be noted, too, that back then, you you actually could, players actually could accept a certain amount of money from boosters, and that it was, if it was over a certain amount, it was breaking the rules, but like, they could work jobs, you know, you could have, you could have a booster hire a, you know, hire a player to work in the off season or whatever, and. Um, I don't know that there was a ton of regulation over whether whether they actually had to show up for those jobs or how much they were being paid uh, relative to the work being done, fair market value, and all that stuff. But there were that's why it was it was shady. Like the big Sports Illustrated expose was like it was more on moral grounds than like clear evidence that they were breaking rules. Now I think that there were you know there was proof of that you know money being distributed that was above whatever was allowed at the time. I'd have to go back and look, but. Um, it's just in, interesting how that all pieced together. And, and now you've, you've kind of got a version of the same thing with, uh, with regard to NIL. Um, so have, there, so there was a sports illustrated story on McElhaney's, like sort of his, his arrangement that was, it used. wasn't so much focused on McElhaney. It was more about the, this fund. It was like the Washington athletic fund or whatever that they, that Torchy Torrance had operated and overseen for, for a number of years, it, w- it wasn't new and it wasn't like secret. You know, mm-hmm. it was it was basically a collective, frankly. <laughs> like that's that's essentially what it was. It was the, like the OG booster collective at Washington way back when. Um, and he, you know, he maintained that like, look, the, we're not breaking the rules. This is just a bunch of boosters getting some money together and throwing it to kids where we can. And you know, I'm I'm not I'm not ashamed of any of it. And the the general reaction, the public reaction was, this isn't the way college sports should be run. I believe so. I mean, it let it, you know, Washington and a number of other schools got sanctioned, uh-huh. um, and it it wound up blowing up the PCC. And there was talk of like a Jason Jenks did a good story in the Athletic, geez, five years ago now, four years ago, um, about the the ill fated airplane conference that that they explored. Um, after kind of there was a mutiny at Washington against the head coach and all this wild stuff going on. But there was talk of, of them joining a conference with like Navy, I want to say, and maybe Notre Dame. And there was all, all kinds of ideas floating around. Of course, eventually it coalesced back into a into a West Coast conference in a, a couple different forms. And I think it took a while to get, you know, all of like the current day participants back on board. But yeah, the uh, the Sports Illustrated story and then the the fallout from um, you know, renegade boosters, so to speak, it you know ble- blew up the league at one point. So there was there was certainly resistance to it. Why do you think it tipped in that direction toward amateurism? <clears throat> I mean, upholding the power structure, the yeah. pe- you know, pe- people in power who make those decisions, not wanting things to change, and you know the the folks who maybe did not having the, the resources to make it happen like they do now. Because the answer to why people are fighting the change toward professionalism now is very clear, which is sort of the the existing power structure. There was a story in the New York Times Magazine um, that this previous Sunday's edition, it centers on University of North Carolina basketball, and they go to the final I read last that. That was a good story. It is a good story. And, but when you, when you go through it, they talk about it. For, UNC goes to the final last year. Usually you'll see most players leave. Four of the five players came back, and and that inclu- and they're they're all getting significant sort of salaries essentially from 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 NIL, and I think the top player is it. I'm I'm going to screw up his name. Is it Bacot Baco Baycott Baycott? They think the estimate was eight hundred thousand um, dollars. That that they think he's 
he's getting. And then there's an athletic, one of the athletic directors is saying, yeah, but essentially that money that is going to those players now, it used to come into our athletic department and we would use it to fund all of these other programs that operate at a really high level. Like their UNC's women's soccer programs won 21 national championships. Like they, they have some really high level programs that are not revenue sports that are Olympic. And, and he's kind of saying, I don't know what a, what we're going to do now. And, and one of my initial reactions was like, okay, this is a result of if you're going to open up college athletics to the, to the market, you are going to see differentiations. Like there are going to, it is going to be open to and subject to the market forces. And you're, you're not going to be able to sort of siphon off and say, well, because of gender equity or because of other sort of considerations we're going to allot equal resources like it's going to be driven by the dollar the other part that occurred to me immediately is like yeah that athletic director's worried because he's like dude our our department is going to be decimated because the money is not going to flow through us anymore like we don't we don't have a, a headlock on this and it's not wrong like there are going to be fewer athletic directors <laughs> going forward they're going to be f- like that department is going to be smaller because they don't get to control all of the money and i don't think th- that's that's not wrong like that's th- i could see why they don't like it but there's nothing there's nothing ethical about that there's also some really difficult like messaging decisions for them to make around that because the NCAA loosened the rules with regard to how schools can talk about their collectives publicly. Mm-hmm. So you're allowed to encourage people to give to the collective now. Yep. But you may do that at the cost of your own donations. Mm-hmm. I still think like at Washington and again, like this stuff's always changing as soon as, as certain donors see that, you know, their, their money going to, um, straight into the pocket of a player in the form of an NIL deal through the donor collective actually like might lead to more <laughs> victories on the football field than, you know, giving the same amount to the department or, you know, funding a certain player scholarship, which a lot of donors do, um, you know, maybe things change, but like, I know I, I kind of, I kind of tried to take a broad view of this about a year ago in a story. And I talked to Ron Crockett at the time, um, who is, you know, obviously a, Hell a yeah, name Ron! In, in Washington, giving used to own used to own uh, the Emerald Downs racetrack, and um, has given a lot of money to not just to the athletic department over the years, but but also to a couple of a couple of different departments academically. And you know, he he basically said like he wasn't against NIL, but he wasn't involved in the collective, and that you know he wanted he, he I got the sense he that he was going to continue focusing his giving on you know kind of the, the areas that that he was already involved in, like directly with the department and. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if he in particular is involved with the the new basketball facility they've raised a bunch of money for, but, you know, donors who are kind of lifetime, um, lifetime donors who have given a lot of money and who have been involved and like have relationships with the department and those, those sorts of things. I don't know that the school is necessarily at risk of like losing out on, on all that money from, from that group that they've depended on over the years, but uh, you know, I think the the new money, so to speak, you know, maybe younger graduates who come into some of this tech money or 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 however it might be, um, might be a little more inclined to to actually see to it that their dollars go directly into the players' pockets. So, I think uh, you're. I don't know that you're going to see like a a super stark change immediately, but you could definitely see that that tide start to turn as you, the demographics of your donor base change a little bit. Yeah, I I, I like the fact that I now know about Torchy Torrance. There's a lot to read about Torchy Torrance. Yeah, seriously. Like, like if I'm, you, he, he's like he, he is. You said it. He's the OG. He's the OG of this NIL. I bought uh, I bought a copy of his biography, like used from some random site for like eight bucks or something. I can loan it to you if you want. Yeah, I do want to read it. <laughs> seriously, like, and I'm actually probably going to go look it up right now. I looked up a picture of him while we were talking. Like, he looks like a man of significance and consequence. Yeah, he was. He I think he played baseball there, like in the twenties. He was friends with Bob Hope. Bob Hope, I think, wrote the intro for his biography, in fact. No kidding. (laughs) Yeah. That is a mic drop intro. (laughs) You're like, Bob Hope wrote my intro. Like, how do you like that? That's that's incredible. I want to say like Bing Crosby, too. He was was a man about town. I mean, 
he was like you think when you think of a, a traditional donor and obviously I don't have like firsthand information as to what Torchy Torrance's bank account looked like. You think of like a really rich person. He probably had money, but it, for him, from what I've gathered, just reading about him, it wasn't about like his own money. He was just really good at getting other people to part with their money and then pooling that money and giving it to people. And it wasn't just UW athletics either. Like he, he was instrumental in like bringing, you know, I think certain like musical acts to town or like, you know, he was just a, he was big into philanthropy aside from, from, uh, that which got Hugh McElhaney to the University of Washington. Oh, but uh, yeah, inter- very, very interesting figure in, in Seattle's history. Yeah, it's Seattle's whole history is hilarious. There's a there's a it's a fairly well-known history book called Sons of the Prophets, which is about the founding of Seattle. And it basically explains how Seattle was founded by a bunch of self-interested crooks. And it's fantastic. I, I Like I, it really made me I the things about the West Coast that I love are sort of the the pioneer frontier spirit that I do think is Im- embodied in the region in some sort of ways. And and the general <laughs> underlying lawlessness of like, well, why can't I do that? <laughs> <laughs> which which I just love. And the book Sons of the Prophets, which I, I believe Spidell is the name of the, the author, and he had done the underground tour in Seattle for a long, long time. Basically, the first sentence says that like, Somewhere along the line, one of Seattle's like founders may have done something that was not directed toward maximizing his own personal gain. But if this event happened, it remains thoroughly unrecorded because we have no record of doing any, anyone doing anything remotely for the public good when it came to the founding of this city. And you're like, it's a, it's a beautiful sentence. It really is. And it's a great... So I, I kind of... I, I feel like our, our region should be well-equipped to thrive in this area of unregulated lawlessness in college athletics. This is not the same thing, but for some reason, what you just said reminds me of the, the John Mulaney bit where he, he's talking about like old-timey bank robbers and how if you committed a crime in that era, all you had to do was have not have anybody see you do it and flee the scene without being apprehended, <laughs> and you got away with it. <laughs> Tell him it was Big John and the Suggins gang. <laughs> That's true. They would put a handkerchief <laughs> over their face. Like, it wasn't me. It's like if Shaggy had been around back then, like it wouldn't have mattered if I saw him on, on, on whatever floor of whatever room in his house. Well, have we, uh, have we sufficiently buried the lead today? Probably. If, if you only got your news from this podcast, your Husky football news from this podcast, and we told you, it's a big deal today that Ryan Grubb is still watching his offensive coordinator. You'd say, well, yeah, of course he is. But uh, he interviewed at Alabama on Monday, traveled to Tuscaloosa, a lot of angst, a lot of, uh, lot of uh, panic within the program maybe about, oh, you know, are, are they about to lose their coordinator here on the last day of, of January and have to scramble and, and fill out the staff differently. But uh, news came out yesterday that Grubb, in fact, is going to stay at Washington. There's no new money involved. He did not get a, a third raise. It wasn't about leveraging or anything. So the Huskies retain their their offensive coordinator. I feel like it's uh, it's obviously a big news item, um, right, because it looked like for a minute there they, they might be losing their OC, excuse me, their OC to Nick Saban. But um, it's it's kind of weird to, like, discuss the ramifications and everything because nothing ha- nothing happened. That's the, the news is that nothing happened. Like every everything's still status quo, which has to say something about the quality of the opportunity that's in front of Washington, right? Because in covering teams, like teams teams have teams have sort of a cycle. Like there's expectations and peaks and valleys. And if I guess I would have expected a dip after this season because I didn't think Penix would be coming back. I, I think I thought McMillan would probably come back. Even after Penix came back, I didn't think Roma Dunze was coming back. And that the team might be as competitive next year, but that, that offense probably wasn't going to be as good. And now you look at it and you're like, oh my God, the offense could really be better. And, and Ryan Grubb not taking a job at Alabama means that he thinks... 
Well, I guess it means he feels obligated or like kind of invested in this this group that he's put together. But he also thinks that they're capable of doing some really incredible things. Like if you thought it was going to get worse and not better, you would you, you would take another job, especially one going to Alabama would put you closer to, to a head coaching gig because there's going to be no question that you're the one running the offense. Like you're the offensive coordinator there. At Washington, yes, he's the offensive coordinator. Kalen DeBoer is also a big part of what they do on offense. Like it would have been a chance for him to, the fact that he's turning it down says something about what he has put into and what he hopes to accomplish next season. Yeah, it, this is this is really weird to say, but I, I'll, I'll explain what I mean. The only the only way that him taking that job would have made sense is because it was Alabama and Nick Saban, mm-hmm. which is like, well, duh, dude, those are, those are two pretty big reasons. Like that's why anybody would want to be offensive coordinator at Alabama. Like, and and we know, you know, after a two year stint there, that job has meant a power five head coaching position for whoever's had it over the last however many years. It's it's a launching pad for sure. And I do think there was an element of like when Nick Saban calls and, and wants to like fly you to Tuscaloosa and talk to you, it's maybe not the best career move to just flat out say no. You know? Why like, is that? Why do you think that is? I don't know. I I think and I, I don't I don't want to speak for Ryan Grubb. Like mm-hmm. I don't know that he thinks this way, but I do think there's an element of, of like playing the game a little bit. Yeah. That that there are just certain coaches where the the industry might get a certain a certain idea about you if you just flat out refuse discussions with college football royalty you know like you don't want to be the guy who just you know eh, i'm not i'm not even listening like oh you want me like nick saban wants an audience with me like to at least discuss this opening he has like no not interested i just i i don't i don't know that uh a lot of guys would would be able to make that call um it's you know it's a big enough deal for Washington that he went out there and came back and is still Washington's offensive coordinator. But you know I I I think it's it's also it's a career development thing too, right? Like yeah, are you going to be worse off for having had like lengthy football discussions with Nick Saban? No doubt, no doubt you're not. But at the same token, by going out there, if they've I mean you're right, it's it's the right move to interview. I think there's also a certain amount of like if you interview with Nick Saban and he wants you to be and you don't choose it like that that can come with a cost too right like there some of those same consequences you just mentioned might come around even if you interview and ultimately decide not to go there yeah it 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 could I think if you want to be a head coach the fact that you the fact that you would would prefer to stay at the school where you know you're already making two million dollars, and maybe he could have made more at Alabama. Who knows? Um, and and you're working for your buddy who you've been with a long time, and you know I think people know what the situation is at Washington. Like, I don't think potential you know ads who might be potentially interested in Ryan Grubb as a head coaching candidate down the road would look at him and say, you know, oh well, he was content to stay at Washington rather than leave for Alabama. So like, how bad does this guy want it? You know, I think like. If you do an, an ounce of research into the into the situation he's got at Washington, and you know just kind of what they've got coming back for twenty twenty three, you, you kind of get it, you know. And I think I think ultimately he probably had that in the back of his mind that like, okay, you know, is this is this really something that I want to I want to just walk away from after selling all these guys on the vision of what next year could be and talking about this team as a playoff contender publicly. And Romo Dunze comes back, and Michael Penix Jr. comes back, and you know you 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 kind of you kind of bang the drum publicly about getting the band back together, and and you're going to leave now, like really for for a coordinator job. I think I think in the end it just kind of didn't add up, and you remove the fact entirely that it's Alabama and it's Nick Saban, and it's not choosing Washington over Alabama as a program. It's not it's not choosing the Pac-12 over the SEC. It's not even necessarily choosing Kalen DeBoer over Nick Saban, although I think Ryan Grubb would, would be happy to tell you that he's he's fine making that decision. Um, maybe not in such blunt terms. I, I just don't think it's about any of that. It's about knowing what he's got in 2023, knowing what he's communicated to all of those offensive players who could have gone in the draft and didn't, and kind of having you know having been committed to to this plan for the next year 
and leaving now, it, it just kind of doesn't compute, you know? And I, I, I think that's kind of the conclusion he probably came to. It's, it's, I, I've been, I've been the rational person here for most of this podcast, right? Like I've been generally like restrained in my sort of pro Husky homerism. Like that, is that, for, is that a fair characterization would, of my performance so far? I would agree. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Take that, Saban. <laughs> Ryan Grubb's not going anywhere. UW job is a plum right at the top. He could turn down like, oh, do I want to go work for like bossy, mean Nick Saban? No, stay in here. College football playoff. That's what I'm talking about. You know, you didn't do this for Jimbo. <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I did not. I did not. Um, I'm pumped. Like, and and there is like there is a little bit of that sort of husky pride sort of homer of like that's right one of the top programs the most successful program in the past 10 years in college football came calling and our man turned it down because of what's in front of him and some some of this is i guess based on my experience of covering the NFL like i don't have a very high opinion of Nick Saban um i don't i've never covered Saban and it's not like i have sort of direct firsthand interactions with him. But in the amount of time that I covered the NFL, I got a pretty good sense of what some people in the league who have dealt with him and some coaches who have either worked for him or know people who've worked for him. I don't think that is a very good job and it may get you a head coaching gig, but I think you have to go through like a pretty significant I think it's really unpleasant and I'm not sure if the guys who've had that job before sort of if Ryan Grubb fits into where he has the same sort of look man he treated Nick Saban treated Bill O'Brien who was a former NFL head coach with a fairly long tenure and Lane Kiffin who was also a former NFL head coach though he's had number of other stops and has his own issues and Steve Sarkeesian who was a really good well-regarded play caller like he put those guys through the ringer like even with their pelts on the wall and there's part of me that wonders of like okay like what what would that actually be like for Ryan Grubb who doesn't have the sort of the not that he's any lesser of a coach but he doesn't have the same pedigree as those guys like that could be an that could be just an awful situation and if things did go south at Alabama, which he would have really nothing to do with. But there's a, I think there's a question about how well Saban and Alabama are con- going to continue to... Are, can they can they get back to dominating the way that they did? I don't think anybody really like imagines that. But I think most people say that like that's still one of the five best programs in the country year in, year out. Like, write it down, etch it in stone. And this year, the, the, the fact that they're not in the college football playoff is not like a sign of like the canary in the coal mine of everything's going but god it seems like it'd be awful to work for that dude i remember during the lead up to the peach bowl when the huskies were in the college football playoff um lane kiffin's media availability and someone asked him if it was if i forget how it was phrased if it was fun working at alabama like if if he'd had fun that year and he he kind of smiled and was like oh fun wouldn't Fun might not be the word I'd use. And I don't think that sat well with, with Saban. Kiffin had already taken the head coaching job at Florida Atlantic mm-hmm. um, and wound up not calling plays That's correct. in the national championship game after they beat Washington. Sarkeesian did. Yep. So, um, yeah, Kiffin, you're going you're gonna to get that guy's honest opinion on, on things. <laughs> Dude, he's hilarious. I've... I've gone different ways on Lane Kiffin. I I kind of like him. <laughs> like, I think he's the perfect troll. Like he's. I'm, I'm glad he's in college football. I. It's really funny. He's. I have an affection for punks. Like I I really do. I like the two of my favorite fighters in the UFC are the Diaz brothers, who are just total punks. Um, one of them got into a fight with a guy that beat him. Uh, like he lost the bout. They both went to the hospital. They got in a fight in the hospital. Like Nick Diaz is a punk. And Diaz explained it by saying, I told him not to come over on my side of the room and he did. So I hit him. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> Fair enough. Dude, the guy, his name was Joe Joe Riggs, Diesel Riggs. He was hooked up to, he's told the story where he was hooked up to, like had an IV in his arm in like a drip container, like on one of those wheeling things, and he's in shorts. And he walked over to the nurse's station, and then he sees like Diaz came over and just clocked him and knocked out one of his teeth. <laughs> um, I like punks. And like Saban, Saban is, Saban's a punk. It's funny. Um, Kiffin, you mean? Uh, yeah, yes. I'm sorry. I am. I am not at all bought in on the idea that like the embers are fading at Alabama. Yeah. By I, the way, I, I'm not like either. I. In, in fact, I think we had. I think we all saw like Nick Saban's like rebirth villain moment during uh, coverage of the national championship game this year when David Pollock was talking about Georgia taking over college football with Nick Saban sitting right there at the desk next to him. Yeah. I think that's the. That's that's what that's what people are going to circle. That's what people are going to come back to when uh, when Nick Saban and Alabama have their come up. I'm not saying Georgia's going anywhere either, but uh, I'm I am not buying that Alabama is suddenly like you know just going to fade out. Uh, I I still think uh, I still think uh, old, old Coach Saban's got got a title or two left in him. Who um who do you think Washington should hire when Kalen DeBoer replaces Harbaugh at Michigan? <laughs> kidding did the, you see the, the broncos job is not available yeah. anymore so did you did you see when harbaugh got the new deal though that he he's referencing the president of the school now but he's not he's not saying the ad's name yeah that relationship appears toast <laughs> makes you wonder how long i mean both of those guys can't last in those roles together right it's it is amazing how how consistently harbaugh tears through people like he he clearly had enough juice to withstand. I'm going to guess that that AD didn't want him there anymore, and he was able to withstand it. But God, everywhere he's been, even in spite of the success he's had, he's worn so hard on the people that are around him. When he left Stanford, people at Stanford were ready for him to go um, around the athletic department and around the football. Like they, he doesn't. And and I, all like is the same was true at USD. Like before he went to like. It's not like USD was like, oh, we just lost the best coach we'll ever have. It was like, well, the best coach we'll ever have lost. But, man, he wasn't the easiest guy to put up with. Well, he took the Niners to a Super Bowl, and it was like, get this guy out of here. <laughs> Dude, I will forever. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen at an NFL stadium. So took him to the Super Bowl in 2012. Like, wins coach of the year in 2011. They get to the NFC Championship game. Gets to the Super Bowl the next year. Gets back to the NFC Championship game. Then has, I'm trying to think, in 2014. Did he make, and I think he had one more season after that. But in 2014, they lose on on Thursday night, the Thanksgiving game, to the Seahawks. And the owner, before the game is over, has tweeted out his apologies to Niner fans saying that they deserve a better effort than the team had provided that night. <laughs> That's what you want. Dude, he'd made it the conference championship game three straight years. <laughs> By November of the following season, the owner, the owner is like, I'm sorry, we've got to put a better product out there than we did tonight. <laughs> what does he bring that, because like, obviously it's it's something he he has he has some sort of secret sauce he has some sort of process that that makes you know all these high level uh decision makers want to to bring him in and, you know michigan is self-explanatory but oh oh like what is attractive i i think you see it in the way his team plays like he coaches an unbelievably physical football team yeah like those dudes are those guys are freaking tough yeah and and it's been that way at every like i mean stanford Stanford was so physically imposing, and he does some interesting things in the run game, but, dude, clearly, he gets a ton out of the players, and they respond to the identity that he creates, that he wants them to play with, and it's just that whether it's he's incapable of politicking or the same traits that allow him to to get players to, to exhibit that kind of, like, that that develop that kind of style within a team make him impossible to manage. It's clear he is insufferable for those people that are around him because 
people will always say like these NFL owners they they would put up with like anything they they would allow someone who insulted their mother if that guy would win for him and like yeah maybe but as soon as that guy stops winning he's not going to be there anymore and like Harbaugh seems to inspire that level of resentment of the minute this guy is, is more trouble than he's worth he is out of here uh, one other Washington related news item this week Sam Heward after all does wind up at at Cal Poly back with Sheldon Cross, his high school coach, he's the offensive coordinator there, playing for uh, for new head coach Paul Wolf. So Do you there you th- have it the the initial the initial knee jerk speculation. Oh, maybe he'll go to Cal Poly. Wound up being true. Do you think he's there for the long haul? You know, I, he's not the kind of guy who wants to jump around. Yeah, and if he has a bunch of success with his you know his high school coach, who's got a really strong relationship with, like I don't know that I see Sam Heward as being the kind of guy who's going to rent a program like that, yeah. use a program like that. And okay, I threw for my, and also like, you know, the NCAA is trying to crack down on the, the multi transfer immediate eligibility thing. But if he's got a degree in the, you know, maybe that, maybe that's his, his path back. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know that he would do that. Like, I think he's someone who does value loyalty and relationships and, but you never know. I mean, it could be, it could be a situation and this is getting, you know, way ahead of things. But if he has like a huge year in 2023 and maybe is there for um, a second huge year in 2024, you know, maybe it's a scenario where, where the coaches there recognize that, Hey, yeah, you, you know, you, you could go do this at the highest level. And if that's something that you'd be interested in, you know, you've been great here and, and great to us and, you know, professional and dealing with everything, you know, we, we give you our blessing to go check that out. But I, I, I don't know that, that there's a plan, you know, I don't know that he's got it in his head. Like, okay, two years here, I'll be a senior. I'll have my degree. And then I can get back to the FBS and the power five. I just don't think he thinks that way. I think it's like, he's grateful to have a chance to go compete for the job. I'm sure with, with, you know, assurances that, yeah, you'll, you'll have every chance to, to win the thing. That's what's interesting. Their quarterback roster is not barren. Yeah. They've got their starter from last year coming back and he replaced a different quarterback who started the season as their starter and then hurt his knee. And, and he's the same age as Heward. So um, I, I imagine now maybe one or more of those guys transfers out, who knows, but I imagine that, that there's going to be somewhat of a competition that they wouldn't just hand it to, to Sam, but you know, we'll see, obviously he feels like he's got an opportunity there. I wish the best for him. And I'm sure that, I mean, after two years, he probably just really, really wants to play. Um, and I'll, I'll be rooting for him going forward. I, I'll admit that I was surprised that there there wasn't, there didn't seem to be, and and maybe he he just wanted to go to Cal Poly to the point where he wasn't going to consider either other Pac twelve programs or, um, or, or other sort of non Power five teams. But I was I was surprised that there wasn't didn't seem to be more of an appetite, uh, for for bringing him in, even though it was kind of later in the transfer period. There might have been some schools that were interested in him and willing, you know, willing to take him, but I think he's mature enough to understand that, like, okay, if I'm going to leave Washington because there was no opportunity for me to play in 2023, I can't roll the dice on wherever I go next. Yeah. You know, it can't be a gamble. It's because I think he liked everything about being at Washington other than not playing. Yeah. So if I'm going to trade all this in and you tie the family history and tradition into it too, for some power five school where like it's not a slam dunk or, or I can't at least see how it could be a slam dunk for me once I get there. You know what? My, my guy is at Cal Poly. I know the offense, like the back of my hand, they want me badly. You know, who cares what the level of competition is or, or, or what, you know, whatever I'm, I'm going to go there. I know I'll be able to get on the field. I'll be able to play football. That's all I've wanted to do, and I'll take it from there. Yeah, you know, I think he's, I think he's clear-headed and, and realistic enough to look at things that way. Uh, I wish the best for him. I, I really, I hope he goes. And San Luis Obispo is one of the best places in the world. Like it's a fantastic town, slow town. Yeah, that's uh, might have to, might have to go do a check-in story on Sam Heward. At yeah. Some point. Then head on up to Big Sur. Yeah. Lovely is there a small Sur? 
<laughs> I don't. I, I, I'm sure there is somewhere, but it's like, like a baby, sir. It it pales in comparison to yeah, El Nino. That's the that's the little sir, El Nino, the child. Yeah. Uh, uh, so recap the news: Tayshawn Lyons, a husky; Ryan Grubb, a husky; and Sam Heward. We wish him well at Cal Poly. The Mustangs. Yeah. Enjoy. That Pismo was the name Beach. of my elementary school. Oh, really? Yeah, we didn't have any sports teams, so I don't know why we had a mascot. But my uh, my niece goes to a place where she's one of the the Sea Dragons, the Rio del Mar Sea Dragons. Ooh, yeah, that's intimidating. I know. I didn't have anything more beyond that, Christian. I was hoping you did. <laughs> well, we've gone long enough. It's been very fun. I've enjoyed uh, this, although I feel like I've rambled a lot. Um, Austin Mack, four star quarterback in the twenty twenty four classes. Committing at one thirty today, uh, choosing between Washington and Stanford. Maybe there's a couple other teams in his top list. Widely expected to pick Washington. Uh, if he doesn't, you won't hear this part. I'll cut it off and won't include it <laughs> as this is publishing on Thursday morning. But if you're listening to this right now and you are hearing these words that I'm speaking, it means that Austin <laughs> Mack <laughs> picked the University of Washington. I, I love it. Oh, that's great. Uh, we will talk to you next week. Uh, enjoy things until then.